First Kings chapter 16, if you would. First Kings chapter 16. I love these Old Testament stories that illustrate just everyday practical truths. Even though we didn't live back then, there's so much to learn and to glean from these. First Kings chapter 16 is where we'll be, but I want to start with a historical event that my grandfather knew about and experienced. It was the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. And what was the Dust Bowl known for? A lot of dust, right? It was the perfect storm leading up to it. What had happened? Well, the two decades before that, there was some land acts that if you wanted to go be a homesteader, the government would give you 160 acres out in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, that's where my family was, or Oklahoma or Nebraska or wherever, and you could go try to make a living. And then there was a thought, of course, at that time too of what? Go west, young man. We've got to go conquer the west and, in other words, tame it and all the vast wilderness there. And so people went out and they started tilling up acres and acres and, and vast swaths of all this land that had been held down by prairie grass. And if you've seen the pictures before of a wheat root versus prairie grass, what's the difference? Prairie grass goes feet deep into the soil. Wheat, it only goes a few inches deep in. And then what happened? Well, as people moved out there, there was a few years of rain. And so they thought, wow, there's a lot of rain here. We should be good to go and plant. But they didn't have the complete picture that that rain was not normal. So they plowed up a whole bunch of land. And then what happened? Drought hit. And drought hit pretty hard. And on top of that, there was the economic crash of the Great Depression. And what do farmers do? if they know it's not, they're not gonna get as much at the market. In other words, the 20s, they had been exporting a ton of wheat, there was a great demand for wheat, so you plant more and more and more of it, economic crash happens, wheat prices plummet, and they're still down there today, right farmers? And what do you do if you wanna make more money? Well, you gotta plant more wheat. And so that even, in turn, caused them to till up even more of the prairie land. And by 1934, between the droughts and the blowing winds, there was 34 million acres of farmland that was completely useless. And if you've seen the photos from those, those days, what is it? It's just a vast field, there's no trees, and there's just mounds of dirts, drift of dirts that, ha that have overtaken, in some cases, houses, or blown in through the door, and even covered the whole inside so that the land is useless. And there was almost 125 million acres of topsoil that was in jeopardy. That's, just for reference, that's three-fourths the size of Texas. We all know how big Texas is, right? That was rendered fairly useless. What would it be like to live then in the middle of the Dust Bowl? In other words, what is it like to live in the middle of a drought? Well, it would seem to me that it would not be very fun. What does everything taste like when you live in that environment? Everything tastes like dust, even your water. 
What does everything feel like? Everything feels dry and grimy. And what are your activities? Well, Kansas is still the same. It's just flat, so you, you, know, you can run around and play football, baseball. No, those weren't it. Yeah. Or the joke that they have up in Canada, you can watch your dog run away for three days because it's so flat. <laughs> but there's not, there's not much to do. What do you do in times of drought personally? Have you ever been in your own times of drought? Spiritually, physically, emotionally? Times where, as Pastor Jeff has been preaching, you need the comfort. And you need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Times of drought are times in life that, that taste gritty, right? <laughs> that taste like dirt. That aren't fun to go through. So what do we do in times of drought? Well, today we're looking at a passage where drought comes upon and we're going to set the scene in this stage, but the title, if we want to give one to this message, is simply Daily Dependence in Times of Drought. It's Daily Dependence in Times of Drought. In our story, we're going to start off in 1 Kings chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 25 with a guy that maybe you don't know all that well, but he sets up the backdrop for what we're getting into in verse 25, we learn of Omri, and Omri rhymes with Henri, and we all know what Henri people do, not good things. And who is Omri? Well, he's a king, and he's a king in Israel, and notice in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 25, it says, but Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Mebat, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. Now the rest of the acts of Omri which he did, and his might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his father and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. Oh, we know that guy, right? We know Ahab. But I start with Omri because what does it say about Omri? The sin that he did, he wrought evil in the eyes and did worse than all that were before him. So here's the king of Israel. What's happened in Israel? Well, we had Saul, we had David, we had Solomon. Solomon disobeyed God, the kingdom split. You have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And they went to two kings. Kings that kind of rhyme, those first two kings of the split were Rehoboam up in the north, I mean Jeroboam up in the north and Rehoboam in the south. And Jeroboam, he's up in the north, and what's in the south? Well, something really important's in the south. Jerusalem is in the south. And so what does Rehoboam do? Well, I don't want my people up in Israel going down to Jerusalem to worship, which Jewish men were required to by the Jewish laws to go there several times each year for the festivals, I have this great idea. I'll set up a place where they can worship. And so he made two golden calves. Nothing ever wrong has gone, you know, nothing ever bad has come from golden calves, we know that. So he made two of them, he put one in Dan, one in Bethel, so that the children of Israel, the people in Israel, wouldn't have to go down to Judah, to Jerusalem, to worship there. And here we come to, and you say, well, that's pretty bad, right? 
He's setting up a golden calf. It was still in the worship of God, supposedly. It was just obviously worshiping God in the wrong way with a golden calf. And here Omri is, and it says, he did worse than anywhere before him, even Jeroboam who set up all of these golden calves, these false places. So how bad has it gotten? Let me, let me put it this way. How bad is Israel's president? Okay? He's the worst one that's ever been. That's Omri. Now we get into our story, and here's Ahab. <laughs> it only gets worse, is the point. Verse 29, we're going to see Ahab come onto the scene, and it says, In the 30 and 8th year of Asa, king of Je- Judah, kingdom in the south, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 20 and 2 years. Samaria would just be the northern part. Verse 30, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, above what? All that were before him. What? I thought we just heard that. He took it up even another notch. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's the first king that set up the two golden calves in the split kingdom. He took a wife, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Zidonians, and went and served Baal, and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So what's the drought here? There's a drought of leadership, a drought of good leadership. And what's the, the image that's set up here, or the story? It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. You thought Solomon was bad at the end of his life? Well, then wait till you see his son Jeroboam. You thought Jeroboam was bad? Wait till you see Omri. You thought Omri was bad? I'm sorry, folks. It just gets worse. But what do we see in the midst of all of this? We really see, I'm going to use four Ps. This first one is God's purview. What is God's purview? Purview simply means a scope of authority or control. It's really talking about God being in control or God's sovereignty overall, even when it looks really bad. That God is in control over it all. We've already talked about Jeroboam. He split the kingdom. He had a golden calf in Dan and Bethel. And what does Ahab do? Well, he steps it up. He's not only introducing now a completely foreign God. Before the golden calves were supposed to be a place where you could worship the one true God, you just worshiped in the wrong way. Now Ahab is bringing in a completely false God because he's married this woman Jezebel. Nobody's named Jezebel anymore. I wonder why. (laughs) And there's good reason for that because she brought in all the wickedness of a foreign God to this place. And all of this wickedness is happening But notice what it says in verse 30 and verse 33. In verse 30, it says, Ahab the son of Omri did evil, but where was that evil? It was still in the sight of the Lord. The sight of the Lord. Sometimes we gloss over that phrase. We just say, yes, evil was going on. God didn't like it. But what I want us to notice here, that all of this, even evil kings, even evil rulers, even when there's a drought of good leadership, it's all in God's sight. 
God knows about all of those things. God knows what's going on. And to me, this actually gives me some comfort, too. Because we've talked about this before. We think that the evil get away with it, right? The bad people can just do whatever they want and they get away with it. That, that leaders can make unjust laws or <clears throat> mandates or whatever and get away with it. Or even bring spiritual wickedness on full display for the whole country or the whole nation to follow after. But did God notice? Did God take note? There's nothing hidden from the sight of God. So God knew about all of the evil things going on. It shows that even in the midst of God's sovereignty and his control, what is he allowing us little men to do? We still have our will, right? We can still choose to do good or evil, to follow after God or to not, to go our own way. And Ahab chose to go his own way. And what did he, he do? We've talked about how he brought in Jezebel, but what did that end up doing? It, it ended up bringing in not just the wrong kind of worship of God, but now false worship of a false God. The end of verse 31, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Again, Samaria is the northern part of Israel. It's a place that a previous king had bought, and it was named after a guy. We know of Samaria in the New Testament, the women of Samaria, right? It's where some of the Israelites and Canaanites or other people had mixed. And so they were kind of this, this half-breed, if you want to think of it that way. So the Jews really didn't like the people of Samaria. And it's all rooted in this idol worship of Baal. Who is Baal? Well, he's, his name simply just means Lord in their vernacular. But in their thinking, the false the false world's thinking, he was the Lord of rain. So he was the one that brought rain upon the land. He was the one that gave rain. And why did you need rain? Well, of course, if you're so dependent on your crops just to survive the winter, you needed rain. And so you would, you would ask for rain from this god, Baal. And, and Baal's two enemies were the god of drought and the god of death, one of them named Mot. And so Baal, in their minds, was fighting against these two gods of drought and death. So whose side would you would want, want to be on? The, the side of drought and death or the side of rain? Well, that's why they would worship this god, Baal. And Baal had his, his weapons in their mind. He had thunder and lightning, of course, so it showed his power to the people. And this is what they would have been taught. And he was the one that brought the land fertility. He was the one that made stuff grow. Not just gave rain, but actually made it grow. And guess how Baal was often represented? He was represented as a bull, as another cow, reminiscent of the golden calves that Jeroboam had set up, reminiscent of the golden calf the Israelites had worshipped at the base of Mount Sinai. And here now they're turning completely away from God and saying, we're just going to worship this totally false bull, this totally false calf, and he's the one that's going to bring us rain and crops and everything that we need. Yet this was all done under God's purview. It was all under the sight of the Lord. And how did the Lord feel about it? Because sometimes we know how we feel about certain things, don't you? It doesn't take long reading your Twitter posts or Facebook posts or just talking 
to see how your, what your opinions are, right, on certain things. And we have our opinions, very strong opinions, very strong feelings on things. But notice verse 33, that God felt a certain way too. That Ahab made a grove, this is a place to worship Baal, and Ahab did more to do what? Provoke. He provoked the Lord God of Israel to what? Anger. Anger above all the kings of Israel that were before him. So in this midst of drought of leadership, in the midst of the drought of what looks like nothing good going on, what does God see? He sees everything, and how does God feel? He's angry about it too. So how does that help us today, even in our own droughts? We, sometimes the droughts that we feel, the dust taste in our mouth, the stink of life, as we've said, comes from outside forces, right? And we might think, God, what are you doing about it? And yet we see, even from this first part, that God sees, and God's not happy with it either. And that gives us confidence that we can rest in who God is. It's that daily dependence then on the character of God. Because everything is under his purview, because he sees everything, and because he knows the wickedness of man is, and is angry about it, he's not happy with the sin of man. We can leave then a lot of that justice and judgment in God's hands. Because he knows and he's going to take care of it. So we see there's a drought of leadership, but secondly, we're going to look at God's promises. We looked at God's purview, now God's promises. We see there's a drought of obedience too. Look at verse 34 of chapter 16. It's the last verse in this passage, or this chapter. Chapter 16, verse 34 says, In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. So there's this guy that in the midst of all this is building Jericho. What happened at Jericho? Well, this is the same city that the Israelites first conquered. They crossed over the Jordan, marched around it. God brought the walls down, and here he is rebuilding it. And it goes on to say, he laid the foundation thereof in Abraham, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. And here comes a very important phrase that we'll see a few more times, and that is, according to the word of the Lord. What's happening here? In the midst of all this wickedness that keeps on getting worse and worse and worse, and there's all this false worship going on, what do we see here? God's promises are still sure. And what's the promise here? Well, if you go back to Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, it's right in that story of the defeating of Jericho and bringing down the wall and all of that. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, this is right after the destruction of Jericho. Joshua 6, 26. And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. What is he saying? He's saying anybody that comes along after we've destroyed the city, and God's destroyed this city, and tries to build it back up, it's going to be at this cost. Your firstborn son's going to die, and so is 
your youngest or another one of your sons. And here we see all the way in 1 Kings 16 what happens. God's curse, God's promise is sure. It actually comes to pass. And that's what verse 34 is saying. That both the firstborn and his youngest son, it's using softer language, but the idea here is that both of his sons died. The guy who built back Jericho, both of his sons died. And how did they die? It doesn't tell us. It could have been just a natural result of all the wickedness that was going on because child sacrifice was part of the worship of Baal. But I believe it was most likely the just direct act of God because of this curse that God killed these two sons. So wicked world, all this drought of going on, and yet what do we see here? That God's promises are still sure. Even though this would have happened long before, many kings before, many judges before at the beginning, and yet the guy that tries to rebuild Jericho, God promised if you do that, this is what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. So there's a drought of obedience, and yet the word of the Lord is sure. The word of the Lord is sure even if it's been spoken many generations before. The word of the Lord is sure his promises are true even if nobody has tested it in a while, if that makes sense. No one else that I know of had tried to rebuild Jericho up to this point. The word of the Lord is sure, even who knows if this Bethlehemite, this guy who rebuilt it, Hilo, who knows if he even knew the curse or the promise of God upon this place. And yet, the word of the Lord is sure. God's promises are true. So we've seen so far that everything's under God's purview. God's in control of it all, even though there's wicked rulers everywhere. Now we also see that God's promises are certain and true, even if they were given long ago, even if no one knows it, even if no one has tested it before. And that gives us comfort today as well. Do you have any really old promises of God that you're clinging to today? (laughs) Aren't there so many promises of God that were written now thousands of years ago? Can you believe that? You're, You're believing a book that's thousands of years old. Who does that? right? And yet it's the revealed word of God that has given us his true and certain promises that in times of drought we can rest in even if no one else believes them or looks to them or even thinks about them. So there's a drought of leadership, but yet it's under God's purview. There's a drought of obedience, yet there are God's promises we see there's really a, a drought of spiritual leadership, so there's no worship and correct worship of God going on. We're going to turn into the next chapter, chapter 17, and a very important man comes onto the scene, and this is how he's introduced. First Kings 17, verse 1, and Elijah, the Tishbite, who is the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab... Who comes onto the scene? It's simply a person, but it's not just any person. It's a prophet, someone who's going to speak God's word. And who is this guy? Who is this guy, Elijah? Well, he's a Tishbite. Anybody know what that is? No, and we still don't really know. We know kind of where it's located, but not not just known about that area in Gilead. So it's, it's a part of Israel that he comes out of. 
But what does his name mean? Well, Elijah, our son is actually named Elias, which is just the, the Greek version, if you will, of Elijah. Elijah simply means my God is Yahweh, or my God is Jehovah. My God is the Lord. So he bursts on the scene and see how this is in stark contrast to the entire world around him that has just gone totally after Baal. And here Elijah comes on the scene. How did he get this name? Parents that love the Lord in the midst of this perverse culture would seem the most likely. (laughs) And here he is named in the midst of Baal worship and false worship of golden calves. My God is Jehovah. My God is the great I am. My God is the one and true, the only God. And that's the prophet that comes onto the scene. And what does he do? He goes right up to Ahab. Where does this type of strength come from or courageousness? We don't know. But here Elijah comes onto the scene and he goes up to Ahab and he says, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Two really important words here, liveth and word. What is Elijah saying? My God is Yahweh. He's the one true, only great I am. And he's the one that actually is alive. You're out there worshiping this golden bull, this Baal, that you think brings the rain, you think brings the fertility to the land, you think brings the crops, but no, it's my God who liveth. And my God has given me this promise. Baal can't do anything about it because he's not even real. You think he brings the dew and the rain? The true God that really lives says this, there's not gonna be any doer rain until I say there's gonna be doer rain. And that's the idea. And what a strong and powerful testimony that Elijah has, even in the first verse of his introduction here. That in a wicked and corrupt culture and world, what is his identity? His identity is my God is the one God that lives and actually holds the power of all creation and everything in his hand. And that's what I'm all about. That's what I'm all about. What's the application? Well, in my mind, part of the application is, yes, be that person, but also surround yourself with those types of people. In other words, if you're living in a time of drought where there's, there's dust and dirtiness and all the disgustingness that goes along with that and the discouragement that goes along with that, what do you need? You need people in your life, like a prophet, who are going to speak to you words that are true, words that are reassuring, words that are direct. And words that sometimes, with Ahab, would have been directly against his way of thinking. Notice that Elijah is willing to say something rather hard to the guy that's in control, that's in power. And yet he's he's able to do it directly and truthfully, and with the heart behind it of, you need to know (laughs) this one true God. So God's prophet is really just God's person who speaks God's truth. So when there's a drought of worship, and I'm talking about not Sunday mornings, but a worship in our own hearts of who God is, 
Do you ever find it hard to worship God sometimes in your own heart? In other words, do you find it hard to think properly about who God is when the stink of life is happening, when trials are happening? And yet that is what Elijah is doing here. He's saying the God that lives and the God whose word is sure, that's who I'm going to point you to in this time. Of course, for Ahab, it was a sign of judgment or of a curse. So God's prophet points to God's truth. So we've seen God's purview. We've seen God's promises. We've seen God's prophet. And we see lastly now God's provision in these following verses as it unfolds in really a neat and powerful way. Look at verse 2 of chapter 17. God's provision. It, it says again this phrase, And the word of the Lord came unto him, that is Elijah, saying, Get thee hence, and turn eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So what happens? The word of the Lord happens. But notice God's provision in all of this. What does God immediately do after giving Elijah a word to the king? He says, go hide yourself. And why would you hide yourself? Well, you've just gone against the most powerful man, right, in the nation, in the country, and you need to get out of there because my word is happening. And where does he go? He goes to a brook that is before Jordan. In other words, kind of more out of the way, not directly connected to the main part, but out of the way, and there's a brook there. And what are you supposed to do? You're going to drink of the brook and I've commanded the ravens to feed thee. So what does God provide? In a very simple way, God provides Elijah's daily necessities. It's just the daily necessities. All it is is water and food. And where are you getting the water from? Just a little brook. And where are you getting the food from? I find this really interesting. You're getting it from ravens. What are ravens? They're gross birds. In fact, in Israelites' time, they, they're unclean birds. These aren't birds that if you get really hungry that you as an Israelite can even eat. You're not even supposed to eat these things or touch them or be around them. And what is God using? He's using some stinky, old, unclean birds to bring daily provision. And notice when that comes, verse 6 tells us that the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. How often did this provision come? Once in the morning, once in the evening. That tells me that these ravens weren't bringing that much, right? They're bringing enough for breakfast and they're bringing enough for supper and that's it. And what do you get? You get some bread and you get some flesh, some meat, whatever that was. And ravens naturally uh, like the dead animals already, okay? So I don't know what exactly Elijah was eating, but it wasn't Ruth Chris Steakhouse. <laughs> Unless you like the, the French uh, style tartare on that. 
It's actually reminiscent, though, of the Israelites in the wilderness, right? But they only got the manna once a day. (laughs) And it was just enough for that day. So what does Elijah find in the times of drought? He's really only getting enough provision for half the day. (laughs) He's not even getting the daily provision in the morning. Yet God is faithfully providing it morning, evening, morning, evening. It strikes you as a little odd. In other words, would you do this? In other words, some of you might be preppers, right? You know what the preppers are. They're those weird people that actually buy that stuff at Costco in the five-gallon buckets that's all dried food, right? And they stock up, and they're ready for when whatever natural catastrophe happens or World War III or whatever, they're ready to go. They got their bunker. They got their supply of food, all of those good things. How's this for a prepper? Just go find a random stream. Don't take anything with you. Just go sleep up there and expect the birds to bring you your food daily. (laughs) That's really not how our minds think, right? And even in our troubles and trials of life, normally that's not how we think either. We say, I gotta fix this, I gotta prepare, I gotta plan. And those aren't bad things, but what does Proverbs say? We can make a plan, right? But God's really the one that's gonna make anything happen. And maybe you've had that in your own life, right? Have you ever made a really great plan Like, it's superb, and it's bulletproof, and it's so well thought out that there's going to be, you know, nothing go wrong with it, and then God just kind of takes your whole plan and crumples it up and throws it away, and it can be a really big thing or a really small thing. We make our plans, but what what is the point here? Elijah, what does he have? He has zero plan, right? There's no plan that, is, that Elijah is going by except obey God. That's his plan. God told me to go to the brook. Okay, I'll go to the brook, get water there, and raven, uh, raven, ravens will feed me. <laughs> that sounds so strange and foreign, and yet it shows us our need daily and even moment by moment, morning and evening, for our dependence upon God's provision. In other words, it's it's just not a one-time thing. It's just not what we want to do, but it's God's provision in all of that. And he drank of the brook, daily provision. So what is this showing us? In the midst of this drought, God's still in control, and God is providing for his prophet, for his person. Do you and I live it in a messed up world? Do we have messed up leaders? Do we have people that either ignore God's promises or go after false and wicked ways? Absolutely. But yet God is still in control and his promises are still sure. So what do we need? Well, we need God's prophet. God's prophet is, in my mind, simply people who are speaking God's truth into your life. So who do you have in your life? Sometimes it's ourselves, right? Do you ever talk to yourself? Do you ever have to preach to yourself? Do you have to tell yourself, self, that is not a good thought to be thinking right now? Sometimes we're a prophet to ourselves in the sense that we have God's truth and we're speaking God's truth and we're 
<laughs> moment by moment clinging to God's truth because our mind so easily wants to take us away from that. But we serve the God that lives and whose word is sure. And then there's a dependence upon God's daily provision. And notice at least how this section ends. We'll go into the next section in just a little bit. But this section of God's provision ends in verse 7. And it came to pass after a while. How long was Elijah there? Who knows? A while. Have you ever been stuck for a while? <laughs> a period of life where you're just there and you don't know a way forward, don't know a way backwards, feels like the tires are just spinning in the mud. That's where Elijah is. And then what happens? The story gets better. The, book, the brook dries up. The brook dries up. Lord, this was what you provided to get me through daily so that I would be able to live. And now the place where you have brought me is now being affected by the drought. Why did the brook dry up? Well, it's really simple. There's no rain in the land. Why is there no rain in the land? Because Elijah said, God said there would be no rain in the land. So it's God's fault here too, right? <laughs> in the sense of God is in control of it all and he's the one that said no rain. And so I don't know about you, but we get to these points in our lives too where God has led us. It feels like we're just getting through maybe by the skin of our teeth. It's a day-by-day -day thing where I'm having to trust God's provision. I'm having to rest on his word. And then what happens? The brook dries up. The brook dries up. And why did the brook dry up? Well, in this case, it's, it's God's the one who dried up the brook. God's the one who took it out of the way. And what did that force Elijah to do? Well, he was already trusting God, right? He was already depending upon God. So what did this force Elijah to do? Well, really, it forced him just to take the next right step, even though he didn't know what it would be. It forced him to move forward. It forced him to move on in the midst of all that. And where does it force him to move? Well, there's no rain in the land. Notice the next section here is the widow feeds Elijah, and this is still part of God's provision, and says in verse 8 that the word of the Lord came unto him, Elijah. Again, here's the word of the Lord coming. And he said, Arise, get thee to Zarephath. So get out of here and go to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Okay, God, you're, you told me to dwell by this for, brook Cherith for a while, and now I have to get up and go to Zarephath. What's there? Well, it's in Zidon. Why am I going there? Well, of course, there's some rich, wealthy person that's going to be able to take care of me, right? No. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Well, at least it's better than the ravens cooking, right? Gets a little bit better, but a widow in this culture is someone by default that is usually very poor. And why? Because the husband who has provided the normal means of subsistence is gone. He's no longer able to provide for the family. And on top of that, remember, we're in the middle of a drought here that's not just affecting this one brook. It's now we're seeing it's going to affect the entire land. The whole land is feeling the pressure of this. And he's going to a widow woman to sustain him. Again, very unlikely, raven, widow woman to sustain the prophet. But what does Elijah do? 
He obeys. Verse 10, so he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a woman, a woman widow was gathering of sticks. And he called her and said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Remember, the brook just dried up. Remember, he just went on a journey. Remember, he's really thirsty. So he sees this widow woman gathering sticks and says, could I have a drink, please? And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth. Interesting way to address. She knew that he was a prophet, right? She knew he was Elijah. But he's like, Your God lives. Not quite sure if he's mine is the sense here. But she says, verse 12, I have not a cake but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Where is this widow at? You want a drink of water? Sure, I'll get you a drink of water. You want a piece of bread? Well, I don't have anything left, but here's where I'm at. <laughs> I'm going to eat the last of my bread. going to set it before my son. And then after dinner, we'll just die. Where's this widow at? Pretty deep depths of despair, right? Pretty deep depths of, of sorrow. Pretty hopeless. And, and what is that showing? That it, it's showing that this, this drought has, has spread throughout the whole land and it's, it's really affecting everyone. And why is this drought happening? Remember again, it, it's happening because Baal is supposedly the rain god and that's who the king has set up to worship And did the widow really have any say or thought in who the national god was? No. And yet she's being affected very much by this drought, is she not? To the point of deep discouragement. So it's affecting everyone. And yet she has to see herself, God's provision for her. So Elijah, who has been provided by for God, is now able to turn and share with this very discouraged woman No, God is going to provide for you as well. Notice verse 13. Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and thy sons. At first that seems like a selfish request, right? Oh, you have your last little bit of cake? You go make it for you and your son? No, make it for me first, and then you can make it for you and your son. And then we'll all die together, right? But what is, he, what is he trying to implement in her life here? What is he trying to show? He's trying to bring about faith in her life. In other words, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust the word of the Lord. You're going to have to trust the word of the Lord even when it doesn't make sense. You're going to do all of those things. So verse 14, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel. So he gives her the reason. He's giving her the truth. She's going to have to decide whether she believes it or not. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. So what's happening here? Something very unlikely. The widow, ready to die, ready to give up. Someone comes to her and says, no, this is the truth of the Lord. And what's left in the widow's hands? She can either believe it or not, right? She can either take the prophet at his word or not. And how is she going to know if the prophet's telling the truth or not? How is she going to know her meal's not going to run out? 
and their oil is not going to run out. There's only one way to know, right? And it's simply this, trust and obey, right? That's the only way that she's going to personally experience the provision of God in her own life. And so she has a choice, and that's really the moment of choice that it brings us to as well. What are you going to do in the time of drought? This is what God's word says, yeah, but it doesn't seem like it's happening. This is what God's word says, yeah, but I sure don't feel like it. This is what God's word says, but the dust tastes in my mouth, (laughs) and the drought, I don't know, it would make more sense just to do things my way, because that seems like the natural progression of what's going to happen anyways. So she's given this promise by the prophet and she can choose to believe and obey or to not. What does she do? Verse 15, and she went and she did according to the saying of Elijah and she and he and her house did eat many days. What happened? She simply did according to the saying. What is the saying? Again, it's that idea of the word. The word of who? The word of Elijah. Who's Elijah? He's the one who's speaking for God. So what is she doing? She's obeying the word of God. It's as simple as that. And what happened? And she and he and her house did eat many days. And God's promise again comes back full circle of what we looked at before. God's promise again is sure and certain. The barrel of meal wasted not. Neither did the cruise of oil fail according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. The widow is provided because she's believing the promises. So what about you and what about me? I I don't know all the droughts that you're going through. I don't know what dust is in your mouth today that's making you want to spit or, or spit things out. Pastor Jeff has already talked much about the grace of God that comforts us daily. And here we see it played out before us in a a story, in in a real-life visual. Even though there's so many different droughts going on. We could could list all the droughts here, right? A drought of leadership, a drought of proper worship of God, a drought of even the word of God, a drought of belief in the promises of God a literal drought of the very substance of food and water that I need. In other words, the needful things I need to get through the day. All of those things are taken away. And what's left over and over and over and over again? Verse 34 of chapter 16, according to the word of the Lord. Chapter 17, verse 1, according to my word. Chapter 17, verse 2, and the word of the Lord came unto him. Chapter 17, verse 5, and he did according to what? The word of the Lord. We come to the widow, and again it happens over and over. Verse 14, for thus saith the Lord. Verse 16, according to to the word of the Lord. Do you think there's a main theme that is strung through all of this? What is this story shouting at us, really? It's shouting that our daily dependence is not going to come from even ravens or widow or a, an oil flask. It's going to come from the word of God. 
That's where our daily dependence has to be upon. And why can we do that? Well, we can do it because God's, everything's under his purview. He's in control of all. He holds all things in his hands, even the wicked rulers. Nothing's hidden from his sight, and God's going to do something about it. We can trust because God's promises are sure. The word of the Lord came to pass several times here, and it still comes to pass even today. God's word is sure. It's also very helpful to have God's prophet in your life, whether it's just you speaking truth or friends around you that are willing to speak God's word of truth into your life. Say, no, this is what God says is true. And God's provision is certain. God's provision, both Elijah felt that personally, but notice how then he was able to share God's provision with someone else that was really in the depths of despair as well. Goes along with that idea that we saw in 2 Corinthians 1 of, of being able to comfort others because of how, or the trials that God has brought us through. And it's all based on this the Word of God, a daily dependence. So, what are you depending on? My God shall supply all your need according to your paycheck, right? My God will supply all your needs according to the government. That's not what it says. It's according to his riches, right? According to what Christ has done for us. So the encouragement here is for a daily, even a a moment-by-moment dependence on God's word, even in times of drought. May God give us the grace. May we seek him daily. That. Let's pray.